Well, the book of Jude is warning the church about these false teachers, these kind of spiritual scam artists who are taking advantage of them. They're turning God's grace into an excuse, a license for just kind of doing whatever they want to do, and they are rejecting the authority of Christ in their lives. And those are two issues, two problems that the church has faced in every generation, certainly in our own as well. At the same time, then, he climaxes his letter by calling these Christians to show mercy, not just to hang on to the truth themselves and not be duped or deluded. He calls Christians to reach out to these folks and snatch them out of the fire. And so it it just drove home to me uh, that we need to, on the one hand, keep the boundaries between what's sure. right and wrong and true and false and all of that, hold tightly to those, but also be willing to reach across those boundaries to show compassion and to, to show grace and to reach out to people who are on the other side, the, the wrong side of the line. You're listening to Beyond You, exploring faith, culture, and higher education, a podcast from Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Welcome to Beyond You, another episode today. I am honored to be joined by one of our esteemed professors, Dr. Jerome Van Kuyken, who just published a book not long ago called The Judas We Never Knew, uh, about this little tiny book in the New Testament, The Brother of Jesus, Judas. And so we have an insightful conversation today just on the power this little book holds in the New Testament and some of the ramifications it has for church and culture today. So excited to have you with us today. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Jerome, thanks for being here today, and congratulations on this book that just came out not long ago. Um, and I know we had a community event here um, not long ago for people to attend to talk more about Judas. So just to get us started today, talk to us about the book. Give us a summary. What 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 mm-hmm. all is in the book? What's the topics? Yeah, well, thanks for having me here today. And the book is about Judas, also known as Jude in the New Testament. He goes by both names there in the New Testament, which is confusing for us. And... He's a little-known younger brother of Jesus who also wrote a little-known book right near the back of the New Testament, the letter of Jude. And what we find is that even though both of these have been overlooked a lot uh, over the course of church history, uh, they have a lot of relevance for us today. We can learn from them in ways that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, I'm excited to get into that today for a little bit, but you mentioned it. We don't often put Jude at the top of our New (laughs) Testament list to read, right? Mm -hmm. So what was it that inspired you to kind of take a deeper dive into the life of Jude and his relationship with Jesus and the family, and Mm -hmm. what what inspired you to do this? Yeah, well, uh, when I was in my master's degree in seminary, our New Testament professor encouraged us to every one of us have our own book of the Bible that we kind of made our own. And uh, Jude's letter is short, so that was attractive. But it also, uh, its communication style is kind of different. It says some things kind of differently. And it just has some really intriguing features to it. Well, then studying that letter led me to look back at the man who wrote it. And uh, I found some things there that that are just really fascinating. Yeah, so... You mentioned that Jude maybe uses some different language or some things mm-hmm. to talk about than maybe the other New Testament writers. Could you yeah. give us just an example of mm-hmm. how, Jude, how Jude did that when he wrote the letter? Right, sure. So uh, one of the things that people notice when they read the letter of Jude is that he quotes from some places, some sources of literature that aren't in the Old Testament. They refer to Old Testament characters okay. like Moses and Enoch, but 
those books that he's quoting from aren't actually in the Old Testament. They're more like fan fiction. Sure. Interesting. Okay. So you mentioned it earlier, but, but Jude is not at the top of the list for most people. Why do you think him as a person and his book have been so overlooked in the history mm-hmm. of Christianity? Yeah. Well, since there's not a lot about him as a person in the New Testament, it's easy to overlook him in uh, favor of Peter and Paul and some of the apostles who get more airtime in the New Testament. And then the letter of Jude, it is short, very short. It's right next to the book of Revelation. So, you know, we get through the Gospels, we get through Acts, we get through Paul, and then we, we want to get to Revelation. It's an we just kind of, yeah, 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 just mm-hmm. skip right over mm-hmm. it. Uh, but then also, uh, Martin Luther didn't like the book of Jude. And so his comments on it and his downplaying of it have sort of set a precedent for the past 450 or so okay. years of Protestant scholarship anyway. Okay. So tell us, uh, for the average listener, you know, obviously Martin Luther was big on James, but, but why didn't he mm-hmm. love the book of Jude? Yeah, he, he didn't like uh, Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation because he felt like they didn't preach the gospel in the way that he preferred to, to hear it and focus on it. He felt like James emphasized works too much, and he felt like uh, Jude, he thought, probably wasn't written by the real Jude. He thought it was a, a, a fake piece of writing that had been passed off on the early church. Okay, interesting. Well, it's a short book, as you mentioned, you know, um, your book is, is fantastic, but the, the book in the Bible, Jude, is, is pretty short, but it covers a lot of territory. Mm-hmm. So we'll get into some of the details and nuances of the book a little bit as we talk, but what relevance do you think in general the book of Jude has for conversations for the church today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the book of Jude is warning the church about these false teachers, these kind of spiritual scam artists who are taking advantage of them. They're turning God's grace into an excuse, a license for just kind of doing whatever they want to do, and they are rejecting the authority of Christ in their lives. And those are two issues, two problems that the church has faced in every generation, certainly in our own as well. Uh, But then also, he is very concerned not only to warn the church, these Christians, against those kinds of errors, but also he encourages outreach and showing uh, careful but real mercy and offering grace to people who've been deluded by these false teachers in order to bring them back. Okay. So there's a lot of implications for a lot of things that we're dealing with in contemporary society mm-hmm. today, and, and we'll probably talk about a few of those. One of the things that you talk about towards the front end of the book is this this undercurrent of family yeah. that's in there, and kind of navigating that for Jesus and his family. Um, why do you think it's so hard for us to imagine or to talk about this whole idea that Jesus had an earthly family? He had a mother. We don't know much mm-hmm. about his father, but why is it difficult for us to talk about that dynamic? Yeah. Well, I think... Part of it is we we want to stress that Jesus is God and Savior, and those are very true, very important, and I talk about them in the in the book. Uh, but sometimes focusing on that can can eclipse his real humanity as well. Maybe we struggle with thinking of Jesus as getting tired, getting hungry, mm-hmm. uh, working for thirty years before he 
goes off on ministry. And part of that is neglecting, downplaying his, his family relations as well. Yeah, we don't often think about Jesus as being a son or a, bro- you know, mm-hmm. a brother or a cousin or anything like that. And so it's interesting that you, you brought that up, which all of us can relate to a lot of these family dynamics that mm-hmm. you, you mentioned. Um, w- one of the things that you mentioned early in the book is, I know for some listeners, they may be committed to following Christ, and because of their commitment to that, they're facing adversity from family yeah. who either don't understand or don't agree. Mm-hmm. So as you studied this, as you wrote this, yeah. talk to us a little bit about what advice from the Gospels or the Book of Jude in particular do you have for a listener who they're committed to Christ, but they're mm-hmm. dealing with a lot of um, opposition from yeah. even close family? Yeah, definitely. What I would say is things that we learn from Jude's life and from Jude's letter are Jesus does call us to a higher allegiance than even to our family. At one point, Jesus says, whoever wants to come after me, whoever wants to follow me, and doesn't, he uses the word hate. Now, that's, a, that's an overstatement sure. on purpose, but he says, and doesn't hate their own family, their own life is not worthy of me. And he's making that sharp contrast in order to underscore allegiance to God, to Jesus, to the gospel has to come first. And he's speaking out of a place where he was experiencing tensions with his own family. As at one point they think that he's crazy and they try and take charge of him and pull him out of ministry. So he's speaking out of a place where he has to set allegiance to his father's will and his calling, his mission above even his natural family commitments. But the flip side of that coin is, Jesus does seek to honor his family as far as possible. You know, when he's dying on the cross, he makes sure that his mother is cared for. And then the other thing is that following Jesus, following uh, his way and embracing the gospel opens up for us a fresh family, a, a family of believers, fellow believers that we're part of. And that's a big family and an yeah. old family, yeah. right? Yeah. Crosses yeah. generations Absolutely. and cultures and nations. Yeah. So it expands our whole notion, our concept mm-hmm. of family, right? Broadens it out quite yeah. a bit. Um, good. You, you know, you kind of mentioned in the book that, uh, or one of the discussion questions you asked is about Jesus honoring his family. And you mentioned that with his mom, even even on the cross. So, so how did Jesus honor his family, even in the midst of disagreement? Division, right? Because I know um, I've talked to a lot of people, worked with a lot of students who, whether it's a political divide or mm-hmm. a theological divide, they're trying to navigate this. How do I honor yeah. my parents, my brothers, my sisters when we disagree? So, mm-hmm. what specific lessons do you think we can get into from Jesus and Jude and their relationship and their whole family that mm-hmm. might apply to navigating just some of the divisiveness that's out there around families today? Right. Yeah. Well, he is clear where they disagree with each other, but he does try to spend time with them. Uh, And like, uh, for instance, at the wedding at Cana, he's there not only with his mother, but then right after that incident is described, it talks about how he travels with his mother and brothers and disciples uh, somewhere else. So apparently his brothers are there in the mix too. So he's, he's trying to spend time with them, even though there's this tension, this disagreement with them. Uh, so that would be one, uh, one way, by trying to find what we can connect with each other on, where's the common ground, and hold on to that, even in the midst of recognizing 
disagreement. Yeah, I, I know it's so easy for some families to get into the points of disagreement first, but what I hear you yeah. saying and kind of looking at the life of Jesus and his family was finding points of agreement and camping mm-hmm. out there before we, right? And we can learn to disagree respectfully, but let's yeah. find what we agree on first and build on that. Yeah. It's great. Good. Uh, another thing that you hit on in the book is this whole concept of, of what you call a surprise identity, right? Yeah. And talking some of that. So why do you think people are drawn to this whole concept of a surprise identity? And and what relevance does that have in particular to the life of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I think for one thing, people are drawn to surprise identity type of things where you think about like the big reveal of who the masked singer is or superheroes having secret identities or anything like that. Part of it is we all love a good secret, right? Even when we're little, when we're on the playground, just beginning school, you know, you, you want to share secrets with your best friend. It makes the relationship bond, we feel like. We like a good secret. We like a good mystery. So there's that element of it. And it in some ways, it lifts us up out of ordinary life, right? Oh, there, this is why conspiracy theories, sure, too, yeah. are so attractive to people, because they want to feel like there's something beyond just the ordinariness and the randomness, seeming randomness, of a lot of life. And so that's certainly a feature of, of just our human inclinations anyway. When you get to Jesus, you can think about how the secret identity theme runs through his ministry in the Gospels. People are debating, who is this? Is he one of the prophets? Is he John the Baptist back from the dead? Is he a sorcerer, somebody in league with the devil? Is he just crazy? Who is this person? And even when the disciples begin to get an inclination of, oh, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God, he shushes them, right? Don't tell anybody yet. And so you have that theme running across the Gospels until his resurrection. Yeah, yeah, that's something fascinating to think about. There's always been this historical debate, right, around, and you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, you know, in in evangelical circles between God's judgment and Mm -hmm. his mercy, and and how do we live in tension, and that's one of the things you talk about in the book quite a bit. So so how did writing this book, and in particular what Jude, what Judas had to say in the book of Jude, um, how did that influence your advice for those who are trying to live in this tension between Mm -hmm. a God of justice and a God of mercy? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Well, because Jude is warning against these spiritual scam artists, he does use a lot of really colorful and graphic language. Uh, I've compared it to being like uh, when, when you're watching one of the car commercials for Allstate and you have Mayhem running around, right? And some of the stuff that Mayhem does is really startling. It draws your attention. It's way far out there. But the whole point is to drive home hey, you need car insurance because you can never tell what's going to happen, right? right? In the same way, Jude is using this graphic language. He doesn't have access. He doesn't have a budget. He doesn't have, uh, you know, the kind of technology we have now in order to have this full-color, you know, graphic visual representation. But what he can do is write, and he writes in such a way that he grabs hold of our emotions and imaginations to warn us, hey, stay away from these folks. They're bad news. At the same time, then, he climaxes his letter by calling these Christians to show mercy, not just to hang on to the truth themselves and not be duped or deluded, but then he also calls them to show mercy to those who are doubting and debating and who are defiled by the sorts of sins that the false teachers are promoting. He calls Christians to reach out to these folks and snatch them out of the fire. And so it it just drove home to me uh, that 
we need to, on the one hand, keep the boundaries between what's sure. right and wrong and true and false and all of that, hold tightly to those, but also be willing to reach across those boundaries to show compassion and to, to show grace and to reach out to people who are on the other side, the, the wrong side of the line. Before we get back to today's episode of Beyond You, we want to let you know about an opportunity to make an incredible impact. And it starts with a place on campus that's close to our hearts, Wesley Hall. Wesley Hall isn't just a building, it's a place of community. It's where generations of Oklahoma Wesleyan University students have formed lifelong friendships and found a home away from home. But we need your help to make it even better. We're launching a special fundraising campaign to renovate Wesley Hall and take it to the next level. Our goal is to create an even more welcoming, vibrant, and student-centric living environment that will enhance the college experience at Wesley Hall for years to come. What's more, every dollar you contribute before the end of the year will be doubled thanks to a generous matching gift provided by our donors. By investing in Wesley Hall, you're investing in the future of our students and the entire Oakwood community. Don't miss this chance to make a real difference in the lives of our students and our campus. Visit oakwoo.edu slash now to double your impact with a matching gift before the end of the year. Your generosity will be remembered for generations to come. Thank you for being a part of the Oklahoma Wesleyan University family and for helping us transform Wesley Hall into an even more extraordinary place for our students to learn, grow, and thrive. So obviously the church trying to live in the tension. Where do you think we get this whole conversation wrong these days between mm -hmm. justice and mercy? How do we get off the rails? And as a follow-up, any advice based on your research and writing on how do we get back to more of a biblically-centered um, relationship between mm -hmm. justice and mercy? Yeah, well, I think that there are two equal and opposite errors that we can get into. One is drawing hard and fast lines mm -hmm. and, and holding on to them, and we are going to be orthodox, we're going to be right, we are right, and we know we're right, holding on to that, but then building such walls that we never have any gates <laughs> to let anybody in and or any gates for us to go out and interact with the broader culture, uh, except maybe in a scolding manner, sure. right? So it's kind of a bunker mentality there. The other equal and opposite danger, of, of course, is to just run out with messages of love and grace and all that, but forget about the real difference between right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And that, yes, people need to be loved and cared for, but the reason that the standards are there is because that's how God designed us to live. Mm -hmm. And when we run against the way that God created us, when we run against the truth and against reality, we break ourselves, we hurt ourselves, and we hurt everybody else around us. So it's not actually compassionate in the end to ignore sure. reality. Uh, it just pushes people deeper into delusion and into damaging themselves and others. Yeah. So holding on to that balance, holding on to both of those is, is important. And that means engagement with the culture, mm -hmm. but it also means deep engagement with Scripture, with truth, with uh, classic Christian teachings and, and standards of conduct that have good reasons for them. We've got to be deeply engaged with both. Yeah. It's analogous, I think, to 
you know, e- even a, a game, right? A game of basketball or something yeah. that if there aren't boundaries and rules, you really mm-hmm. can't play the game, right? Yeah. And so it's similar from what I hear you saying that without these kind of clear lines of orthodoxy and absolutes mm-hmm. that we're not able to live the way that God has called us to do it because otherwise it's just kind of moral case that we descend. Or, or if it's just about the rules, like we forget yeah. the enjoyment of right. playing the game, yeah. right? So being able to find that tension, I think, is really, really significant. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to kind of piggyback on that for a minute, I know one of the conversations that is so popular today, not only in the church, but just outside of that, is this whole concept of love. Is mm-hmm. love tolerance? Is yeah. it acceptance? Is Does it require confrontation? And you kind of talk about that in a little bit and mention that Jude maybe has a different way of talking about love uh-huh. or defining love. So talk to us just a little bit about his uniqueness when it comes to love yeah. and what implications does it have for how we define it today in the church mm-hmm. world and beyond. Right. Yeah, well, in this little letter of Jude, he uses the word for love seven times, which is, of course, a wonderful biblical number, right? And it's a complete number, yeah. Uh, If you look at how he uses it and and the background of it, what he says when he talks about love, he's not focusing on feelings or sentiment or that sort of thing so much as he's focusing on the idea of loyalty, faithfulness, Mm. Uh, to God, to, to the covenant with God, faithfulness on our relationships with others that seeks their good, a good that's in line with reality. Okay. And so while you know, there's certainly a place for emotions, there's certainly a place for sentiment, the core of love for, for Jude is this faithful, loyal, and yes, compassionate action to help other people to connect with what's good and ultimately with with God. Yeah, so how does that reframe what it means to love people well? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you think about, for instance, the idea of tolerance, certainly uh, love, faithfulness can allow for a diversity of kind of surface level things, right, that don't really matter Mm -hmm. in the end. Uh, if you think about even the difference among cultures, if I eat with a fork, if I eat with chopsticks, if I eat with one clean hand, uh, you know, there are a variety of ways to eat. And they all serve their purpose just fine. And so there's no need to get hung up on some of those surface-level cultural differences. But underneath that are some really important things. There, there are absolutes that are across cultures and that call for us to to value them and uphold them for the good of sure. others. Yeah, yeah. So we won't go too much down this trail, but but one of the things you talk about in the book and that, that Jude or Judas references in the book is kind of a, a different sexual ethic when it comes, mm-hmm. and again, that kind of dovetails with the conversation about love. So tell us a little bit more about what, how did he write about that? And again, what mm-hmm. implications does that have? Because I know that's such a hot topic that's out there in yeah. the church world today and in yeah. the broader societal circles. So mm-hmm. um, can you speak to that just for a couple minutes? Yeah, he does warn, because one of the things that the false teachers are promoting is just sort of a, a wild party ethic. In the name of God's grace, mm-hmm. they're using that as an excuse specifically for the, the word he uses could be translated as wild parties, basically. Uh, and they're crossing lines sexually. Uh, there's indication that they are trying to seduce some of their uh, followers, uh, so committing adultery, um, various 
sexual practices that cross the line in, in, in various ways. And Jude is drawing from the biblical code of, of sexual ethics, and he says these, these false teachers are crossing these lines that ought not be crossed. So that's certainly a part of it. At the same time, when he gets to the climax of his letter where he's calling for mercy, he specifically refers back to some of the language that he uses early on to describe kind of the, the sexual misadventures and, and um, false teachings that, that these false teachers are promoting. And he calls for Christians to show mercy to those who are uh, damaged or defiled mm -hmm. by these practices. Okay. Again, that balance of grace and truth, justice mm -hmm. and mercy, right, that you yeah. keep, keep hitting on. You mentioned in the book um, just kind of walking through some of the early church and canonization and some other things. So um, we'll wrap up this section and move on to some teaching and, and more of that side of things because you're so great in the classroom. But what are some of the biggest lessons from the early church that you think we can learn mm -hmm. from or that we can learn today? Yeah. Well, Jude's letter is written specifically to Jewish Christians probably living in Palestine, uh, in Galilee, actually, probably. And uh, one of the things that happened early on in church history is that as the majority of Christians uh, were drawn from a Gentile background, Gentile audience, non-Jewish background, this rift began to develop between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. And so Jewish Christianity withered uh, in the generations following Jude's letter. And that's continued to be the case until just essentially since the 1970s or so, there's been an uptick of the rise of Messianic Judaism, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, there are now more people of Jewish extraction who are following Jesus as their Messiah than at any other time in church history wow, since the very okay. first couple of centuries yeah. of Christianity. Okay, uh, But what has the church lost from that long period of time when we didn't have the input of our Jewish brothers and sisters, yeah. really, when Christianity was basically a Gentile game? Well, quite a bit, I would suggest. And so one of the lessons that we can learn from Jude for today is, hey, we've got to pay attention to our brothers and sisters in Christ mm -hmm. who are from different cultures, certainly our Jewish brothers and mm -hmm. sisters, but also mm -hmm. for those of us living in the West, uh, Christians who are outside of the West, who have correctives, who have fresh insights, who have uh, great things to offer to Christianity as a whole. And we impoverish ourselves if we fail to listen to them and engage with them. Yeah, absolutely. So so let me ask you this question. Do you, do you have any resources, like if... If, if the church should consider more of its Jewish roots or different mm -hmm. culture, because again, all of our tendency is to become a little bit myopic when it comes to yeah. our view of faith and our culture's view of faith. So any books, recommendations out there that you would maybe throw to the audience and say, well, you, this might be something to pick up to just learn more about mm -hmm. some of the Jewish roots of Christianity or to kind of broaden the way that we think um, outside of just a purely Western view of Christianity? Yeah. Uh, the works of Kenneth Bailey okay. are helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Kenneth Bailey um, are a good place to start uh, with that. Great. Yeah, so check those out if you want to. If you don't mind, I'm going to just go into teaching a little bit uh -huh. because, you know, Jerome, I've talked to several of your colleagues and different students on campus here that you are one of those um, academicians who has the unique ability to publish 
right, to research. Mm -hmm. I mean, you love the academic endeavor, endeavor, yeah. but you are just so good in the classroom as well <laughs> in connecting with students, right? And, and I think that's one of the things that makes you unique. So, so tell us a little bit, wh what is your approach to the classroom, mm -hmm. right? What's the process like for you of taking the things that you're learning, whether it's here or something else, and bringing them into the classroom? How, how, do, you, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, well, I think Jude gives a great example or role model for me to follow in that he has these things that he wants to say that are super important, but he engages with his audience by using really memorable visual imagery, these, these graphic images that he uses, and then he connects with what they're reading, stuff from their own popular culture. Okay. So these, these uh, non-biblical stories about Enoch and about Moses and all that, that are just sort of folklore or circulating in the culture that he's writing to. And so for me, I have important things that I want my students to learn, but I figured they're going to learn them best if I can make them colorful, if I can connect them with popular culture. And so that's that's kind of my approach. Yeah, I've, I've walked by your classroom before, and I've seen everything from Beyonce to, I mean, all kinds of stuff going on, like, in your classroom. So can you give us a couple of examples of uh, how do you do that? Like, give us some, some examples of how do you take something that's out there in pop culture and mm -hmm. tie it back to some of the theological concepts that you're trying to get across to right. students. Yeah, so right now in theaters, there's uh, the Book of Clarence that's out, which is kind of a, a retelling of the gospel story from a particular uh, perspective. And it interacts with, in, in passing, it refers to ideas that end up becoming part of a book called the Gospel of Judas, the infancy gospel okay. mm -hmm. of Judas, which is Again, kind of early Christian fan fiction, didn't make it into the New Testament, uh, but the book of Clarence actually interacts with that idea, draws some of its ideas from there. So that would be one example of pointing out, hey, here are references in your popular culture, a movie that you might go see, to uh, early discussions within Christianity about what books belong in the yeah. New Testament and what don't. Yeah. So yeah, that would be one example. Great. Um, so you think about, you know, the work that you do with students and, and all the research that you do. Um, what do you find most meaningful about being in the classroom and working with students at Oklahoma Wesleyan? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to kindle in them a love for the material. Mm -hmm. Because if you love it, that gives you the motivation to, to learn, to study, to, to figure out how this applies to your life, that kind of thing. So if I can capture their hearts... Yeah then the content will come. Makes sense, yeah. So you work with students, obviously. I mean, we've got a, a pretty diverse group of students here mm -hmm. at Oklahoma Wesleyan, and I know you teach some general education or yeah. classes that you have a wide swath of students. So as you get to know students in culture today, what is it that gives you hope moving mm -hmm. forward as you think about the importance of the Bible and the authority of Scripture, and yet you work with college students? What is it that gives you hope in the work that you're doing? Yeah. I think uh, one of the things that gives me hope is the signs of spiritual hunger uh, among students and the signs of uh, God at work in special ways. Uh, you know, we think about the Asbury outpouring just last year, uh, things like that going on where there are signs that, okay, in the midst of all the kind of breaking up of old uh, alliances and old, uh, old ways of doing church and old ways of relating church and culture and all that, in some sense that's breaking up 
the ground for the planting of fresh seeds so something new can sprout. Yeah, we get the sense that there is something new and fresh that's taking place, right? And so thank mm-hmm. you so much for all that you do to fan those flames. Um, and thanks for taking time to Jerome today, Jerome, just to be with us for a little while. Yeah. Um, and thank you for your investment, not only in our students, but in the wider kingdom of God and, and through the work of academia. So yeah. thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Beyond You. Let us know what kinds of conversations you'd like to hear by leaving a comment.